church for 10,000 years, we will be singing the faithfulness of our great God and more. Amen. All right. Well, in a moment, we're going to begin our uh, return to our study in Luke. Uh, we're in chapter 3 this morning. Next week, we will be, Lord willing, uh, beginning a new series, which we'll be interspersing with our study of Luke uh, in the book of Jonah. So next week, we can look forward to Jonah chapter 1 as one of our elders, Bob Lutz, comes and preaches for us. Pray for Bob this week as he prepares in the text that God would use him in the life of our church. Now, as we go to God and to his word, let's turn our hearts towards him in prayer, asking for his work in our congregation. So pray with me if you would. Father God, we come before you rejoicing that your faithfulness is indeed great. We come to you, God, presenting our needs, knowing that all we have needed, your hand has provided for us in Jesus Christ. And so we are confident as a church body to present our needs to you now, to assemble and gather and tell you the needs that we see and lay them before you. Father, our hearts are heavy for our former members, Mark and Lisa Adair, as our brother Mark battles cancer. Father, we pray that you would ease Mark's pain. Father, we pray that you would strengthen Mark and Lisa in Christ. Father, we pray that as Mark's body fails him, that his faith would hold strong. Would you help them, O oh God? Father, we pray for our sister Debbie Session as she cares for her mom, Kali, who has been in and out of the hospital. We pray for Kali's health, that you would strengthen her as well. We pray that you would encourage Debbie as she cares for her mom. Father, we know that there are others in our midst who are hurting even now. Father, would you be the comforter to them today? Father, as many of the women in our church begin Bible studies and book studies this week, we pray that you would bless these coming studies. Father, we pray that you would give the ladies of our church an increasing depth in their community in Christ with one another. Father, we pray that the sisters in our church would be faithful mothers and daughters and wives and homemakers and employees. And we pray that these studies this spring would be used to make the women of our church more into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray for our sisters and for all of us, really, that we would see meaningful relationships in the local church as part of what it means to be a Christian. Father, we pray that as you bless our church, that you would also bless other churches. Father, would you raise up other faithful churches here in South Florida that are committed to your gospel? Father, we praise you that this is happening even now. We praise you that across this county and this state and this country and the world, that at this hour, 
men and women are gathering together to declare that Jesus Christ is king and to sit under his word. We pray that you would bless the furtherance of your gospel in other local churches. And now, Father, as we come to sit under your word, as we come to hear from the book of Luke, Father, I pray that you would now use my lowly words in this sermon. Father, we would want to see Jesus this morning. So I pray that you would work despite my weaknesses to glorify your son as we understand him through your word. May our lives be changed as we behold Jesus Christ in who he is. May we understand him clearly, O oh God, and worship him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, understanding someone's real identity can change everything. I want to think this morning with you about the identity of Jesus Christ. Before we do, think of how important it is to understand identity. Just consider the case of a man named Guy Goma. Guy is a Congolese French immigrant and a business graduate. And on the morning of May 8th, 2006, he arrived at the BBC news station to apply for a job. However, upon arriving at the news station, he was mistaken for a British journalist and a tech expert, also named Guy, Guy Cooney. So the BBC staff brought in Guy Goma, the job applicant. They put on his makeup. They checked to make sure his name was Guy, and they took him to the TV studio. Then this job applicant, Guy Goma, was mistakenly interviewed on live network television about the tech industry. You can watch it for yourself on YouTube, preferably later today, not now. <laughs> this case of mistaken identity is hilarious, as it seems that Guy didn't really realize what was happening until the cameras actually started rolling. And the best part is, which is why I like him so much, he went along with it. <laughs> this immigrant from Congo answered questions about technology and even predicted the future increase of online music sales. It was great. The interview was a hilarious case of mistaken identity. Following the interview, he then went downstairs and still applied for the job that he came for. Fortunately, he didn't do so well in that interview. He didn't get the job. But understanding someone's real identity just can change everything, can it not? So one author points out that a mistaken identity like this can be a hilarious amusement. Or, for other instances, it can be incredibly serious or even tragic. For example, what about the identity of Jesus of Nazareth? What if you understand him to be a good man or even a good teacher? What if you understand him to be worth listening to on a Sunday morning, but maybe not worth rearranging your life for? And then what if it turns out that he is indeed God? Or what if, even as Christians here today, you misunderstand what the Bible has clearly said about Jesus Christ and his nature? And what if you end up worshiping a view of Christ that is different 
than what is revealed to us by God in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he, he warns against worshiping a different Jesus than what is proclaimed in Scripture. And he says that they could be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we want for our church? A, a pure devotion to Jesus Christ? A sincere following of our Lord and Savior? Friends, understanding who Jesus Christ is is of the utmost importance. If you want to follow Jesus truly, if you want to worship God rightly, if you as a church assembled want to rightfully know your groom, then we must be constantly understanding more of who Jesus Christ is according to his word. So today, we come to a passage which clearly teaches the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ really? If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We'll be in verses 21 through 38. Three, Luke 3, 21 through 38. My prayer is that as we study this passage together, we will better understand the person of Jesus Christ so that we can worship more truly and follow him more faithfully. My prayer is that we will turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face today. So follow along as I read the text, beginning in verse 21. We read there, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Naum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosim, the son of Amadom, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Minna, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nation, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Naor, the son of Sirug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, 
the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Well, we begin today's passage where we left off last week. And here we find at the beginning of this passage, John the Baptist was in the wilderness calling the people to repentance. So in today's passage that we just read, we just saw that Jesus is baptized. Then God affirms him, and then we read this genealogy. The, the story itself may seem short, even simple, but the significance of what is being said here is monumental. Let's look closely at how this unfolds in order to answer the question, who is Jesus really? I will give several points today. We'll see how many to help us understand this passage. So who is Jesus really? Point number one, he is the son who is baptized. So John had been baptizing, and now in this passage, John steps off the scene, and the focus turns to Jesus Christ. And it starts with merely stating that Jesus also was baptized. Luke, in his account, doesn't focus long on the baptism. It seems like he's eager to get to, happen, to get to talk about what happened right after it. But still notice, he was baptized. And verse 21 says, all the people were baptized, and Jesus also was baptized. It seems that Jesus is associating himself with all the people who are coming and admitting their need of repentance. While he did not need to repent himself, Jesus is identifying with the crowds. Leon Morris summarizes this well when he writes, Jesus saw sinners flocking to Jesus, John's baptism. Clearly, he decided to take his place with them. At the outset of his ministry, he publicly identified himself with the sinners he came to save. Jesus' baptism is not showing us that he had sin, but that he found his place, even at the very beginning of his ministry, with those who needed their sin dealt with. After all, this would be his future, would it not? The identifying of himself with us who are sinners. Even more so, Paul actually says that God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So turn your eyes upon Jesus this morning, who was baptized for us. Who is Jesus really? Point number two, he is the praying son. Did you notice that in the text? That as the scene unfolds after his baptism, and this happens, this, this affirmation that we read happens while Jesus is praying. God the Son talking to God the Father. Throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus teaches regularly on prayer, and he models it. He teaches on prayer more times than I care to list. We'll see them as we move through them in the coming months. He also, though, models prayer in his own life. He regularly goes off to pray by himself. Luke 5.16, Luke 6.12, Luke 9.18, 1 
Luke 9, 28. Luke 22, 39. Jesus is regularly spending time with the Father in prayer. And here, he's praying on the cusp of the Father publicly identifying him and the Holy Spirit descending. It's almost as if this moment that we see happen is, is part of the overflow of communion that Christ is enjoying in the Godhead. Christ communes with his heavenly Father. So, church, let me ask you, do you commune with God in prayer? If we are to imitate Jesus Christ, we are to be those who give ourselves to prayer in pursuit of an intimate knowledge of God. Now, certainly, Scripture commands and models a variety of types of prayers for us, does it not? We see songs of praise. We see desperate cries for help. We see whispers of quick prayers as we go before the king. But I wonder... Does your prayer life have this element of fellowshipping with God? Communing with God in prayer. Listen to how J.I. Packer writes on this. He says, knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. Knowing God is more than knowing about him. It is a matter, it is a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and are being dealt with by him. Friends open their hearts to each other by what they say and do. We must not lose sight of the fact that knowing God is an emotional relationship as well as an intellectual and volitional one and could not indeed be a deep relationship between persons if it were not so. Knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. So does your knowledge of God, your your intimate desire to know him match your desire to understand the things of God, your desire to grow in knowledge? Do you relate to God personally in prayer? Even in my own life this week, as I've just reflected on this picture that we see again and again of Jesus Christ, even as the Son of God, still communing with God in prayer, I've been encouraged to pray. So let me encourage you, pray, church. Pray often. Pray using scripture to guide you. Make time to commune with God in unhurried prayer, unrushed prayer before the Father. Imitate Jesus Christ, who is the praying son. Who is Jesus really? Point number three, Jesus is the anointed son. He is the anointed son. There Jesus was in the water, having come up from his baptism. And he was there praying. And we read verse 21. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. It's hard to imagine what it must have been like for the, the heavens to be opened. Mark's gospel says that it was as if they were, they were torn apart. Kind of get this picture of, of the sky merely being a cur curtain that's, that's being torn open to reveal the throne room of God. Matthew says that this all happened suddenly. 
This was not some gradual sunrise, but rather God was cutting through creation, and he was unexpectedly revealing his glory as he spoke. And as the heavens were opened, Luke says that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus Christ. Now, Scripture teaches us that God is three persons in one essence. One God, perfect singularity, yet three persons in perfect relationship. So here, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, gives a a visible manifestation of his presence by appearing bodily. And what is he doing? What is he doing descending on Jesus like this? How should we understand this? What's the Holy Spirit's purpose for this? Well, thankfully, the Apostle Peter preached a sermon on this first. Peter, in Acts 10, 37 through 38, preaches on this very event, and he tells us what happened. There we read that him, he say, Peter said this. He said, you yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John was proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So here, Jesus is being empowered for his ministry. And God the Father is anointing God the Son with God the Holy Spirit. The the Trinity in perfect unity is consecrating the Messiah's ministry here. So in scripture we know that a, a king would be anointed with oil in order to be set apart. It's a means of consecration. Or perhaps you can think of a, of a royal coronation, right? When, when a king is identified. Coming up on this in, in May in the UK, uh, the new king of the UK will be coronated. His reign has begun, and yet it will be publicly affirmed and celebrated before its people as, as the king sets, sits on a throne and a, a crown is placed on his head. Well, notice here in this passage Jesus is not anointed with oil. He's not anointed with a crown or crowned with a crown. No, Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself descends on Jesus Christ. He is his own anointing. God is his own anointing. Reformed theologian Scott Swain captures this beautifully, explaining the Spirit's office as the crowning person of the Trinity. He writes, in Jesus' baptism, the Father publicly crowns the only begotten Son. And the Son is crowned, and the Spirit is the crown. So Jesus is a new king, and the era of his reign is now publicly beginning. But did did you see how it happened in the story? Do you see how it appeared? Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit came like a dove, a bird. Why a dove? God the Holy Spirit is is not a dove, but here he he shows himself to appear like a dove. What message is, is being sent by this picture of a dove? 
The French pastor John Calvin is helpful in this. He writes this. He says, Why did the Holy Spirit appear in the shape of a dove rather than that of fire? The answer depends on the analogy. We know that the prophet Isaiah speaks of Christ, that he is a bruised, that a bruised reed he shall not break, and the smoking flax he shall not quench. So on account of this mildness of Christ, by which he kindly and gently calls and every day invites sinners to the hope of salvation, on account of this, the Holy Spirit descended on him in the appearance of a dove. And in this symbol has been held out to us an eminent token of the sweetest consolation. This work gets good. Listen, that we may not fear to approach Christ, who meets us not in the formidable power of the Spirit, but clothed with gentle and lovely grace. This is how Jesus Christ comes to us. So friend, do you need help today? Jesus Christ is crowned with the spirit of gentleness to help you. Are you today broken in your sin? Jesus Christ is crowned with the spirit of grace to help you. Friend, are you weary? Jesus is crowned with the spirit who, as our comforter, brings hope with all kindness. Yes, there is a severity to God, which we saw so clearly last week, in his call to repentance. And yet, Christ does not begin his ministry with that in in view. Here, the picture that he takes is taking his place among sinners, identifying with us, and coming with grace. Jesus comes anointed with the spirit of gentleness, like a dove. Beloved, won't you turn your eyes to this Jesus today? Who is Jesus really? Point number four. He is the recognized son. He is the recognized son. Here, not only do we see that the person of the spirit in this divine moment, but we hear this voice coming out of heaven, the voice of the father, the first person of the Trinity. Imagine hearing this voice coming from the sky. Imagine the the heavens splitting open and, and hearing this affirmation, this endorsement. Luke says, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. God the Father here is publicly affirming his son. He is publicly recognizing his son as divine. And there's no question now. All is explicit to those listening, to to those there, to those reading this, to Theophilus, to us. Jesus Christ is the son of God. No longer is it an angel that comes as a messenger to announce the identity of Jesus Christ, as we've been seeing in previous chapters. No, now the announcement is made by God the Father himself. What a sure and powerful affirmation this is. There's no mistaken identity here. This is a clear and pointed picture, a point to the identity of Jesus Christ. Church, God was not 
quiet or subtle in affirming his son publicly, and neither should we be. Turn your eyes on Jesus and recognize the son. Number five, the beloved son. Who is Jesus really? He is the beloved son. Notice not just that this voice speaks, but notice what God says. God the Father declares Jesus Christ to be his beloved son. This is worth marveling at. How beautiful is this? You probably noticed in the passage the, the genealogy that I read earlier, how many times the, the son of someone is identified. In the English version, about 78 times Luke identifies the son. But here we see one special divine son being identified, and he is identified as being loved by God. Here we get to, to peer, as it was, into the inner workings of the Trinity, how the Trinity works. God the Father has an eternal love for God the Son. So before you were born, before you existed, before this world existed, before time began, God loved God. God loved his son. John 17, 35 tells us that, that when Jesus was praying to the Father, he says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. I wonder if you've ever heard it said in parenting how good it is for a child to hear of his parents' love for one another. It's good that a child can grow up and see that the father and the mother love one another and have been committed to one another even before the child was born. It's good for the child to see that he or she is not the center of the family, but he is joining into a family. Friends, in a very small way, this is a picture of what we see going on here. It's an illustration because it's, it's good for us to see that God is greatest in God's own affection. And yet when we stare into the depth of this love, we still grow in our appreciation of God's love for us. If Christ was the beloved son of God, the one in whom God loved supremely. How precious it is that God gave him for us. If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how also, how will not he also with him graciously give us all things, Paul says. So for anyone here who's not a Christian, you need to understand this depth of love that God has. You see, Christians believe that we all have sinned against God, that we have done what is evil in God's sight, that we deserve eternal punishment. But God, the good news of the gospel is that God, in Christ, rescued us. God loved his son, and yet he also sent his son for us. His beloved son, his son of priceless worth and love, God sent to be the propitiation, the covering for our sin, so that if any of us would look in faith to Jesus Christ, we could have salvation. 
Christians are confident in the face of death because we see a God who loved his son and gave his son up for us to pay our debt. What a great assurance this is. If God loved his son this much, then we can be confident of his love for us when he gives us his son. Can we not? I invite you, turn to Jesus Christ today. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, who is the beloved son. Well, we also see in this passage, point number six, who is Jesus really? He is the pleasing son. God the Father says of God the Son, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Similar to what we've just talked about, we can ask, what does God take pleasure in? What fills God with delight? With what is God pleased? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is what pleases God the Father supremely. When God the Father looks upon his Son, he is only ever perfectly pleased. There is never any moment of dismay or disappointment. There's never any moment of displeasure. There's never any reluctance to love. He never experiences what you and I experience when we have a spouse that just is a little hard to get along with that day. Or maybe when our, our children are just getting on our nerves again. Or when we have a friend who just keeps rubbing us the wrong way. And, and despite that, we choose to love our spouse and stay married. And we choose to put up with our kids and keep parenting them. And we choose to maintain our friendship and move on. No. This is not how God's love works for his son. For God, there is only delight when he looks upon Christ. He is perfectly and infinitely pleased with him. And he sees Christ, mind you, with the eyes of God. His eyes are not finite like ours, who are easily satisfied. No, with perfect desire for perfect holiness, he looks on Christ. And with those eyes, he sees Christ and he says, I am pleased. Christian, what a good, what good news this is for our souls. Do you realize today that if you trust in Christ by faith, you are found in Christ? Scripture teaches us that when we come to faith, we are united into Christ, that we are clothed with the robes of Christ. What this means is that instead of being under God's wrath, you are under God's pleasure because of what Christ has done for you. What this means is that tomorrow afternoon when you sin again, I don't know, whatever it is, you know your sins. Let's just say you have a bad attitude about something, or perhaps you are harsh with your spouse, or inappropriate to your kids, Wh whatever it is, when you next sin, God does not do as he should and pour out his wrath on you. As he does with, as he holds back with the rest of the world, he's also holding back with you. But he's not just holding back with you. What this means is, even as you are still a sinner, you are covered with the robes of Jesus Christ. And when God looks on Jesus Christ, he is pleased he is, he is happy with what he sees. He finds his pleasure in Jesus Christ. 
And if you are in him, he finds his pleasure in you. Oh, please, come to Christ. Find your confidence, not in how good you are or aren't, but in resting in him. Turn to this Jesus Christ, who is the pleasing son. Who is Jesus really? Briefly, number seven, Jesus is the son of Israel. So following this profound scene, we come to the genealogy. And, and Luke makes it clear that this comes at the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is 30 years old, Luke says, and this is the time that he begins his ministry. Numbers chapter 4 tells us that's the same age that a priest would enter into his public ministry. And so now, at the beginning of this ministry, Luke confirms Christ's identity not only before God, but also his identity as a man. And we find this genealogy. We see that Christ was born into a, a family line. He was born with an ancestry that is traced back through his, his supposed father, jo uh, Joseph. This ancestry, we see, goes through the Davidic line, and it goes through the person of Abraham. I think we're meant to see here that he is the son of Israel. That is, that when Abraham was promised that a seed, would, that his seed would bless all peoples, here we are seeing his seed. Here we are seeing the fulfillment of the line of Abraham and David. Not only do we need a Savior who is God, we need a Savior who fulfills all of what God promised. And this is what we see in Christ. But especially, note what Luke is trying to show in this genealogy. And this is where we'll end. Who is Jesus really? He is, number eight and finally, the son of Adam. If you were to compare this genealogy of Christ, this ancestry of, of, of Christ, with the one that we find in Matthew's gospel, you would notice several differences. One important one is that this one seems to follow Jesus' legal ancestry through Joseph, and Matthew follows Jesus' maternal ancestry through Mary. Also, Matthew points, puts his emphasis on the point I just made. He puts his emphasis on the point that Jesus Christ is the, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Israel. Whereas Luke seems to include that point but not emphasize it. Luke seems to be instead ringing a different gong that just sounds over and over again as each of these sonships is named and as it grows and crescendos to the point of emphasizing the son of Adam, the son of God, pointing out that God is the originator of this line, and Adam is emphasized at the end of this genealogy. Why would Luke end his genealogy back at Adam? Why is Luke going there? Why does he work his way all the way back through these generations. The point, I think, is to emphasize something for us and for Theophilus. Luke wants us to see that the ministry of Jesus Christ that is coming now has utmost significance. It is for all people. This man matters not just for the sons of Abraham, not just for the sons of David. This man matters for all who are descendants of Adam. 
all who come from Adam, all who are in this world, need to understand the ministry of this man, which is beginning here. Daryl Bach summarizes this beautifully. This is what he says. He says, Jesus' genealogy ties all humankind into one unit. Their fate is wrapped up in Jesus. Jesus is not some isolated minister to Israel. He does not merely minister to a tiny nation of subjected people seeking political deliverance from dominating Rome. No, rather, he is the culmination of a line of descendants stretching back to Adam. His ministry is comprehensive. In him, the entire hope of the Old Testament is inseparably and eternally bound. In him, the fate of all creation hangs. Friends, this is who we see today. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Adam, whose ministry is indispensable and important for all. He is the new Adam, as we will see next week. This is who Jesus is. Friends, understanding someone's real identity changes everything. When we understand Jesus and his true identity, our lives are changed. I've given you eight observations about Jesus. There's probably another 8,000 left in the book for us to discover. And yet, it's so easy just to read this gospel and cherry-pick out moral implications and, and encouraging stories from the life of Christ. But let me tell you, this gospel is meant for us as a church to read and understand and see Christ, to understand who Christ is and who is the Christ that we need. Our goal as we work through Luke is to see Jesus Christ. We as a church are his bride, and we must know our bridegroom. So let us press on to knowing Jesus Christ, even this week. Let us behold Jesus Christ. Let Jesus Christ be the, the glory and prize of our church. And then let us turn and look full in his wonderful face. Let us adore him, and we will be conformed into his image. Let's pray to that end today. Pray with me. Father God, we praise you for the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be a people that understand clearly and faithfully, according to your word, who Christ is, and that his lordship would therefore stretch into all areas of our lives. Father, we pray that we would look upon Jesus regularly, daily, constantly, and that our lives would be shaped into his image. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen, church. Would you stand? Let's respond as we do.